tuning into Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. We are talking today to Ali Khwaja, sir, the man who has seeded, who has founded Banjara Academy. They share it all on their website, the story, the journey about Ali Khwaja, sir, himself on the Banjara website. But to lay a context, it is important that I read out something verbatim from their website. A. It has been a joy to see that since 1983, anyone can feel comfortable to walk in, phone up, or write to helping hands. And for the sake of confidentiality, we do not maintain records, so we do not know how many people we have benefited. B. Many other activities have evolved over the last three decades, making Banjara a true oasis in the world of emotional turmoil and loneliness. And C. The fact that we have made many people sit up and pay attention to hitherto ignored and misunderstanding areas of human relations, child upbringing, and so many others is what we regard as our foremost achievement. Let's attempt today, Alifar, to unfold, to unveil the story behind the story, the story behind your wonderful heart and the chemistry which entails. Welcome to Small Big Wins. Thank you. Ali, sir, I think it's very important that we start with asking you the root of Banjara Academy, particularly how the word Banjara came into being. Yes. Banjara, as you know, means nomads. <clears throat> but Banjaras are a tribe of people who are also known in different uh, places as Banjaras, Lambaras, Lambanis, etc. Now, what happened was that uh, their roots apparently were from Germany and Austria. And they moved down because they were gypsies. They used to be on the move all the time. They came down towards the Middle East. From there, they came with the invading armies right up to Delhi. And with the Mughal armies, they came all the way down to the Deccan Plateau. And when the Delhi, I mean, the Mughal Empire sort of dissolved, they stayed back. That's why you'll find them mostly in the Deccan Plateau, three, four states of the Deccan uh, Plateau. It so happened that my father, who was an anthropologist, very deeply involved in the study of tribals. And one fine day, he happened to see that in a remote part of the jungle, he saw a German living in a Banjara Tanda. And he was quite impressed and he found out that this gentleman, Mr. Heimendorf, has come all the way from Germany to study these people. He got very fascinated with him and he took so much interest, he got so much involved that he was also awarded with a UN fellowship for two years to study these Banjaras right from their European uh, links all the way uh, down. After coming back, he was basically an IS officer. He persuaded the government to start for the first time what is known as a Directorate of Tribal Welfare. And he became the first director of the Tribal Welfare. I mean, became an advisor. And the whole process of trying to, you know, give them some identity, rehabilitate them, started off. One of the things he wanted to do was to ensure that they have a place to live. Because if they stay put in one place only, then they will get the civic benefits and whatever they are entitled to as citizens. Otherwise, they were moving every time and losing out. So he got 
from the government a huge tract of land allotted, which was just outside the city, but which was so rocky and so barren, nothing grew over there, it was inaccessible. And he persuaded them to come and set up their huts there. And to ensure that they came, he went and built his own house on, on the top of that hill. And I was born over there. So when I was born, I was surrounded by 600 families of uh, these Banjaras. I happened to be literally an adopted child of uh, uh, this. The process started off, but unfortunately, as it happens, you know, the government, there was a reorganization of states and my father being a civil officer had to go to Maharashtra. And when he left, not much was done. I grew up in Bombay. I finished my studies in IIT Bombay. My grandfather was not keeping well, so I went back to Hyderabad to take care of him. And that is when I got in touch with these people and found out that they have been struggling for years and years to get recognition as a scheduled tribe, which is their uh, birth rate. So I help them to whatever extent I can. We brought out a publication, for example, you know, which would go to all the top people in the country. We created some awareness. We did some activism. We did all that I could help them. Because most of them were illiterate uh, uh, people, whatever I could do. And just before 1980, we managed to get them this uh, you know, recognition as scheduled tribe. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, what happened was that I was so fascinated with these people. The name itself sounds, you know, so simple and nice in any language, if you see. And most importantly, I consider myself as a Banjara. Though I don't physically move from one place uh, to another, but my mind is always on the move. So I thought, you know, the most ideal thing is to call myself a Banjara and call our academy a Banjara Academy. And if I'm not wrong, this is the place which was came to know, which came to be known as Banjara Hills in Hyderabad. That's right. Subsequently, because my father left and there was no sort of, you know, patron left for these people. The city grew and the land values went up and most of the Banjaras got tempted by the offers to sell their plots and move out. And subsequently, because of the good view it commands and the proximity to the city and all, Manjarail became one of the most luxurious localities and continues to be like that. Absolutely. But what a living example your father was. So he saw this German and then he persuaded the government and then he went on top of that hill and built his own house over there. That, that is, so that, that he, he inspires all those people to come and give them the yeah. faith. Yeah. I was a baby at that time, but he used to tell me that his car would not go up because there wasn't any proper road. So whenever he would come back home and he would come to that edge, half a dozen of those people would come running and push his car all the way to the uh, top. <laughs> Sir, in what you are today and all the journey over the last four decades, what have been some of the most indelible influences from your father, from your parents in shaping you? My father and my grandfather have been great uh, influences. In fact, my grandfather lived up to the ripe old age of 97 and he was fit and fine till a few months before he passed off. He was a very, very big role model to me in terms of, you know, being autonomous, being balanced, accepting life as it came and ensuring that you do things for others. Just to give you an example, uh, you know, in those good old days, he was also a uh, senior government employee. And when he retired from government service, in those days, you had to go to what was known as the pension payment office and collect your pension every month. There was no banking system at that time. Hmm. 
then he would go there because of his position and all. They would give him respect. They would make him sit down, and in five minutes they would pay the money and go away. But he noticed that the lower staff, you know, class three, class four, that we call them, they yeah. were treated so badly by the staff. They were, we were made to wait for hours. All those things were happening. He started getting very agitated. One day he fired that fellow, and he said that, you know, he's your senior. Tomorrow you are going to be in his uh, uh, shoes when you retire. Why are you behaving so badly with them? Apparently, that gentleman said, sir, whenever you come, don't we give you respect? Don't we do everything? Don't we see that you are taken care of? Why are you taking up cudgels on their behalf? Are you their advocate? It struck a chord. And my grandfather said, yes, I think they need an advocate. So he went and enrolled in law college. Oh, my God. He completed his law, put on his black coat. And the first five days of the month, he would go there, sit down under a tree just in front of the office, and tell all these people, if anybody misbehaves with you, tell them that my advocate is sitting outside and call him in. In majority of the cases, that was enough. And in case somebody still you know, was not reasonable with them, he would walk in. And he would say, yes, I am his advocate. Do you want me to drag you to a court of law? Or will you do things? And work would be done. For years, he kept uh, doing something like that. Something so unique, no? how many people would think of this sort of uh, thing. So these were the type of things which I learned from both my grandfather and my uh, father. Yeah, what a way of finding purpose. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, Ali, sir, you did engineering from IIT. Then you did your master's in industrial management, in industrial engineering. You did your PhD in behavioral sciences. That's right. That's a phenomenal playbook. <laughs> after doing all this, you did not start a business or you did not become part of any business, but you gave a completely different uh, route to life. Hmm. What was that? Why was that? No, I don't think technically it is right to say that I did not uh, start a business or become part of a business. I did. Only hmm. thing was that I was not into the usual rat race, which you know, a typical businessman is supposed to uh, be. So I got in, I, I started off with a consultancy with project works and this and that. Whenever something fascinating would be happening, whenever a person known to me would be doing something which I felt is of value and you know, it has got a social objective and this person who's doing it is a very deserving person, I would get into part of it. I would earn money also from them. It's not that I did it. Uh, but I kept my identity and I kept my isolation saying that I'm not going to get caught in by you know, becoming a full-timer or getting into that nine-to-five job or something. So mm -hmm. I always used to do that. Whenever I was unhappy, I would mm -hmm. say, thank you, I'm moving out. You don't even have to pay me. I'll go ahead and do something mm -hmm. else. So like that, I did a lot of work, did get a lot of exposure to the corporate world, the industrial world. And slowly, most of my work started moving towards what we today call as HR. The word HR was not there 50 years back, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, it, it became more of people-oriented. So whenever somebody was doing some work and I was associated with the organization, I would say, people are your greatest assets. Please pay attention to people. I'm willing to train them. I'm willing to build that teamwork. I'm willing to assess them. So a lot of my time went into that. And that is when I realized that there is this thing called counseling. I never heard the word until I think I was almost 35 years of age. And the moment I took to that, I realized this is my calling. Hmm. And is it at that time you went to do your PhD? Yes, it so happened that when I started doing counseling and I became successful at it, 
people started inviting me to give talks you know to conduct workshops to do training to train other people including a couple of universities used to invite me to do their faculty development programs for psychology professors and lecturers mm. at one point people started questioning saying that what gives you the right to teach these people what has what is your qualification that is when i said okay the qualification is what you want i'll uh, get it uh, uh, done i was very lucky to find a very very wonderful person two people in fact the guide and the associate guide both were such wonderful people because i was already a you know occupied person with my responsibilities family everything i obviously couldn't give full time like a student but they were very flexible they saw to it that you know within my limitations i could pursue whatever research had to be done whatever documentation had to be done and all that and uh, took me a very long time but i did manage to get that phd so then i turned around to these people and i said hey guys what you want to know what is my qualification here it is so the grandfather got triggered to become a lawyer and oh, yes, yes. to become a phd in behavioral sciences that's right that's right in fact my father uh, was a, a senate member of bombay university and i told he is the first senate member to have resigned from the university to become a student of the university wow so did his phd from bombay university after retirement that's some continuity of legacy <laughs> so you are known so much for your good work and as you say the doors of banjara academy are and will always remain open to individuals who seek guidance in child adolescent family and interpersonal emotional issues now my question is sir that there are counselors abound today what makes the difference between a genuine counselor and a counselor actually speaking uh, you know there is a lot of this debate a lot of questioning about counselor genuine counselor and all that but if you look at it a little in depth it happens in every profession mm. there are good doctors and there are quacks mm. there are competent qualified doctors who have no ethics and who take advantage of uh, uh, patient despite their professional <laughs> expertise and there are doctors who have dedicated their whole life just to save patients regardless whether they earn money or not mm. similar things happen among uh, advocates similar things happen among so many <coughs> professions see the reason why counselors get isolated in this is because unlike other professions be it medicine be it law be it anything else there is no formal qualification there is no controlling body when a person completes his mbbs he still cannot practice medicine unless he registers himself as a member of the indian medical council and the indian medical council has the right to derecognize him and stop him from practicing so once a doctor says i have this in karnataka it is read as kmc karnataka medical council kmc number so and so mm. we know that he comes under the control of the medical body same thing as you know is there for advocates or architects or any profession unfortunately even till today in india we do not have any regulatory body we do not even have a minimum qualification which defines a counselor so that's the reason why they are a little more in news people start questioning a lot of things but i think it because counseling is basically a human thing mm. i my experience has been anybody who needs counseling goes and sits in front of a counselor 
within 15 minutes he knows whether he can trust him or not hmm. that human touch is so so obvious particularly when you are looking for emotional support when you are confused or you are feeling low you can make out that yes this is one person i can trust hmm. and that is what we train our counselors also to all the time saying that we are teaching you all the possible skills of uh, counseling but the ultimate the final which is not open to any form of compromise is to be congruent hmm as you know congruence means saying what you think hmm meaning what you say and doing what you are committed for hmm. in simple words <coughs> it is the opposite of hypocrisy yeah there's so much hypocrisy floating around in society hmm. i tell counselors that you have to ensure that you are at the other extreme end no counselee should ever get the feeling that you are being a, a hypocrite hmm. as long as you ensure that you will be able to help people hmm. so sir you started this counseling program the diploma course yeah in banjara academy so this was started a few years after the academy was formed yes we initially as uh, you read out in the introduction we started off with the free counseling center which is called helping hand hmm. for that we used to have short term training programs anybody who wants to be a volunteer we used to start off with a 10 day program and then every month we used to have a two day you know update on that <coughs> so these people used to come they would give their voluntary services and obviously we wouldn't charge them any money to get trained and we wanted a commitment from them of once a week 3 hours so whoever could commit 3 uh, hours per week became a volunteer and started doing the work hmm. we were very happy doing that once we started with our center and we were providing counseling service a couple of hospitals invited us saying that there are a lot of patients who need a little bit of emotional support can you do that so our volunteers started going there that's how it was expanding mm. at one point some people approached and said i want to be trained to become a counselor but for various reasons i cannot be a volunteer with your organization i cannot you know give my services to you maybe they belong to a different city or maybe they have other commitments or whatever maybe the reason <coughs> i want to learn counseling and practice it somewhere else i am willing to pay you for it that is when it struck us that if we charge fees from those who are not going to be volunteers it can subsidize the organization of these programs true for those who are going to be our volunteers mm. so that is how the paid concept of the uh, program started started with 10 days then we expanded to 6 weeks and we expanded to 3 months in 1999 <coughs> we finally came to the conclusion that counseling cannot be done haphazardly by just a few weeks let us have an exhaustive program where people come in they learn something they go back and they practice or they get exposure to society and then they come back again next week so we came up with this idea twice a week two hours come and spend that time with us and we are not going to have any theory any textbook any examination to ensure that you know you don't get distracted into rote learning and whatever at the practical level we are teaching you you go and practice or you just go and observe we talk about marriage counseling even if you are not competent right now to do marriage counseling observe married couples mm. 
see why they are happy, why they are not happy. Who becomes happy? Who doesn't become happy? What are the ways in which they can make themselves happy? So when you start observing that, when you come back next week and share with us, again, we take you forward. So in 1999, they started this one-year program, which we call as the Diploma of in Counseling uh, Skills. And right now, we are in the process of completing the 23rd uh, batch. It's been a really uh, rewarding experience, I would say. I was speaking to one of the participants of your program. Yeah. And she mentioned that, you know, during this entire program, there are, um, there is a very large amount of time spent in hospices, drug addiction, HIV, LGBTQ. And in fact, she was, she was uh, part of your first batch uh, in 1999. And she said, even at that time, we were exposed in a deep manner to LGBTQ. Very true. Very true. Before people had even thought that, you know, something needs to be done or we need to connect to. Yeah. Yeah. We took that extra step forward. And today I meet so many people, including a few who have today become their activists, leaders, and who made a name for themselves in this uh, uh, community. And who remind me that, sir, I used to be a teenager trying to struggle with my identity and find out something. And you were one person who would come and talk to us and reassure us when nobody was wanting to even touch us with a uh, barge pole. I remember in town hall, they had organized a meeting 25 years uh, back. And they had invited 20 VIPs. Top-notch mm-hmm. people, politicians, these, that, you know, the influencers and all. And somehow, the 21st person they invited was uh, uh, me. I said, any what such big shots coming in? What will I do? No, we know that you genuinely care for us. So just come at least for a few minutes, be part of it. I said, okay, I'll go there. Maybe I'll stand in one corner and uh, show my spirit with them and walk off. And I realized that none of the 20 came. At that time, there was not only a stigma, it was illegal, there were so many uh, hassles. Mm. One of them turned up. Mm. And it turned out that I was the only speaker and I was the only one who interacted with them and encouraged them and whatever it is. So quite a few people remember that. So mm. these are the things. And that's not that's only one area. You know, for example, a hospice, there are people who are suffering from incurable disease and mm. there is no more treatment. Doctors have raise their hand saying that there's nothing more that can be done. All you need now is care and not cure. Mm. So they are put in a uh, hospice. Our volunteers, our students go there. They interact with them. They sit by their bedside and get a feel of what it must be for a person who knows that death is around the corner. Then when they talk to their loved ones, they get to see what it means when you know that your loved one is lying there and it's just a matter of days before that person leaves you and goes away. I mean, these learnings are much, much more than what we learn in any classroom or through any textbook. I was, you you talked about congruency and I wanted to ask you, uh, what helps in building congruency, how to build congruency? And it's not only about counselors, but even for generally people. And I'm not sure whether I should ask you that or should I rather rephrase it and rephrase it and say that does sensitization like the way you do help in building congruency? Yes, it does. It does for a large extent. As I was just giving you an example, when these people go to 
an old age home and see people who are holding positions of power, authority, and everything. And <clears throat> today they are almost, you know, bedridden and immobile, and nobody cares for them. Mm-hmm. They go to an orphanage and they see <clears throat> what it means to have a child who have never had the pleasure of a father or mother lifting him up and cuddling him or kissing uh, him. So this is what may, is the first step of this sensitization. And then what we do is to help them to understand that you have to swim against the tide. It is not that easy. You have to be a person of your own. You have to learn not to get into that herd mentality. In fact, I work a lot with students mm-hmm. and I you know, work with them in areas such as career uh, selection. Mm-hmm. There's so much of herd mentality that, you know, they just want to. So I tell them that if you want, you should have the courage. If you remember movies like Three Idiots, where there are these uh, uh, people who say that, you know, I want to become a photographer or I want to do this or I want to do that and what they have to face. Of course, it was over-dramatized, but still, that gives you an idea that if you have that courage to go against the tide, at the end of the day, you will be a very fulfilled uh, person. And that is what I find among so many people. Like I told you about my father, grandfather. I've always been fascinated with people, you know, who are at the sunset years of their life. Most people don't want to interact with them because they say, oh, they're only talking about their old stories and they're so boring. They've never been boring uh, to me. I always get to learn something or the other from the people who have held positions. And who had very wide experience of uh, life. And that I come back and share. And I tell them that, do you know, you heard of Mr. XYZ? Oh, yes, he's such a big man. So you know what he's doing today? You know what he thinks about life today when he looks back? He says, this is what it is. For all the achievement that I had, what is important to me today is this. So why do you want to wait till you come to that stage? You are half his age. This is the right time to start off. <clears throat> that way, and so many other ways. We keep working. It's a constant battle to go against the uh, tide where it's so easy and so comfortable to be a hypocrite. Sir, speaking of courage, I went to a school called Frank Anthony Public School in Delhi. And the motto of the school is courage is destiny. And while we were in school, we were just supposed to sing the school song. And we sang the school song in assemblies and uh, uh, stuff. So what I'm trying to say is that no one at that time from our teacher community or the principals or the directors of the school came and explained us the meaning of the song, Courage is Destiny. And today when I look at that meaning, it is so powerful that I talk to my friends and tell them that had we known this meaning before, Maybe we would have been more independent in our thought. Correct. Absolutely. Right. This is one thing about the education system, which again, whenever I do orientation or training programs for teachers, once upon a time, I used to do a lot of them. But then you know that our friend, the Corona walked in and now everything is uh, BC and uh, AC, like we used to say before Christ and after denomination. So something like that. So I just share whatever used to happen in those days. Most of the schools used to have some sort of orientation for teachers at the end of the year and the beginning of the year. And whatever my module is, I used to spend that time, first of all, helping them to understand themselves. 
unless you are at peace within yourself unless you are comfortable unless you are a fulfilled person unless you have the curiosity to learn when you walk into the school if you'll see the you know slogan of the school you don't walk past it till you question and say what is the, this if you have that type of thinking students will automatically pick it up from you so whenever possible whenever possible i keep doing that there are excellent teachers and people who do that but they are a minority unfortunately it finally boils down to have you completed the portion hmm. talking about are you at peace with yourself you write somewhere sir that you have met many urchins and you have met many wise masters also what have been some of the most important indelible things which you have been impregnated with in those meetings ah uh, when we were in college on um, weekends sometimes we used to take our cycles and go cycling out from pavai <coughs> far away into some areas we happened to locate an ashram there which was run by a very young man highly educated person who had converted into a swami and he used to be running that uh, little <coughs> ashram which was also uh, an orphanage he had a few orphans also staying there one day he made a sit down and he asked us a very nice question he said that there was this kid you know who was brought and dumped in front of our orphanage because he was born as a complete cripple he couldn't move his limbs he couldn't talk he couldn't do anything at all so he was abandoned but we took him in we said is after all a child of god we have to look after him hmm. we kept him there we used to you know feed him bathe him clothe him do everything for him but he was lying there like a vegetable hmm. one fine day a very big uh, businessman a philanthropist turned up over there and he said he offered a sweet to this boy and this boy couldn't raise his hand to pick up that sweet and we had to explain that no sir he doesn't even have the ability to even you know we have to take the sweet to his mouth and make him Uh, gentleman was very touched. He went and spoke to some of the top-notch doctors and came back and said, "We can get him treatment by which he can become more active and mobile and whatever it is. I am willing to bear the cost." It took years. Certain surgeries, certain physiotherapy, certain speech therapy. Mm. Everything was done for that child, sponsored by that rich uh, person. By the time he grew up, he was as normal as anybody uh, else. and he became the baby of you know of him we were so proud of him we used to sort of display him to everybody saying that see this boy could not even you know talk could not walk could not do anything and look at him now he's grown into such a nice handsome young man and he's doing this and that then swami ji asked us 30 years have gone past from his birth can you make a wild guess what he must be doing now we were uh, at loss you see we don't know sir maybe maybe he has become a doctor and he is uh, taking care of patient maybe he is running some orphanage or something or no maybe he has gone into the regular job and business or whatever uh, it is difficult to say <coughs> he said he is locked up in a jail with a life sentence so it doesn't make a difference now whether he can talk whether he can walk rest of his life he is going to be confined into that jail He said, "What happened?" He gave a very simple answer. He said, "We taught him how to walk. We did not show him the direction." When he started walking, we became so thrilled. We pampered him so much. He became a spoiled child. 
Mm-hmm. He started doing all sorts of mischief and we overlooked it because he's a poor fellow, you know. Till yesterday, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do this, let him have something. Let him we pampered him so badly. When he grew up, he became an antisocial. He started indulging in all sorts of activities. He ran away from here. And one fine day, he went and committed a murder. And today, he's in jail. So he says, please remember, more important than teaching somebody how to walk is to show him the direction. He will learn his own way of how to walk. Provided there's a motivation for him, he sees a direction. Even if he is going through a dark tunnel, if he sees the light at the end of the tunnel, that is enough for a person to strike. That's, that's a powerful illustration, sir. So, your organization is one of the organizations from India, one of the very few who have been granted a full membership into the World Federation of Mental Health and also given voting rights. So, has this privilege uh, given you the chance to make some impact which was not made earlier? Uh, individual, I mean, to us as an organization, no. But it opened the doors to many of our students. For example, one of our students whose husband got a job in US and they migrated from here was mm. feeling very sad that here she was doing so much work counseling and you know helping out people and all that. But there, as you know, the laws are very strict. Unless you are qualified in a recognized institution from their country, they don't give you the license to practice as a um, therapist. And she went and kept on knocking doors. And when she said what I have learned, where I have been trained and where I've done a lot of internship and all that, they got interested. And they got in touch with us. Uh And we had this extensive dialogue. And then they said, okay, we'll give her a chance to see whether she really is of that uh, caliber. And when they gave her the chance, and when she came up to it, they were very impressed. And that is when they said that, yes, we do understand that there are, you know, training programs outside the country, which technically may not be qualified, but they are doing as good work as uh, us. And just giving you one example of how various people in different ways have benefited, and that's all we are looking for. Not mm-hmm. that we want any benefit out of this uh, membership or recognition. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was an occasion where Somebody was trying to you know, entice me to, they have an India representative, you know, every country has a head of the uh, thing. So they were trying to coax me into standing for that uh, nomination or election. I said, no, nothing of that. Sort. I sit here and do whatever I uh, can. You know. So coming a little bit to the corporate world, yeah. the leading management professors all over the world, they say one thing to business leaders. Build a psychological safe, psychologically safe environment. Create psychological safety with your people. Mm. And still, the corporate leaders, generally speaking, are going towards numbers, numbers, numbers. And that is the whole, uh, in the end, there could be a lot of things on the facade. But behind the facade, it's just about that drive for numbers. What would you, what would you say to them if you were to address them? More than me, I just wanted to share with you uh, before Corona, of course. <clears throat> I was invited to a very reputed IT company, which mm-hmm. was having a meeting of the All India HR executives. There were about 200 of them. And before I reached early there, and their own head of HR of their company was addressing uh, their wonderful lady. She was winding up, but the last few sentences that she said had such a deep impact. She said, 
we are such a reputed organization that whenever we uh, advertise for some jobs, let's say there are, you know, uh, 50 vacancies, 500 people apply or more. We select the best 50 according to us and the other 450 go away. He said, what do you do to show the other 450 who have taken the trouble to come to us that we are a good organization? They are your ambassadors. Mm. If you don't bother to even tell them, if you say, yeah, I will let you know when, if you're selected and that poor man is waiting, waiting for an email. Or you just tell him, no, sorry, you have not been selected, go. Just think of his emotions, what he goes through. He says, can you not spend a few minutes? Call them over to the cafeteria, give them a cup of coffee, talk to them, spend 15 minutes with them and say, best of luck, I hope somewhere else you get a good job. You almost made it, but unfortunately the competition was such that we could not take uh, uh, you. You send them with that. You've got 450 ambassadors speaking so highly about your organization. The same thing um, happens, you know, inside the organization. There are these people who have absolutely no loyalty to their uh, organization. You will remember the good old days when a person used to get a job in a reputed company. He would probably get a brass plate made with the company's name. The designation is not important, so I would write Ali Khaja, Hindustan Aeronautics Limited, one nice embossed thing, and I would put it up on my house. And next 35 years, I'm working for Hindustan Aeronautics and whatever promotions and whatever it is, till I uh, uh, retire. Today, I don't think anybody will be interested in investing a few hundred rupees in, uh, to make a nameplate with their company's uh, name, because by the time it is delivered, they've already changed their uh, <laughs> organization. But when I see that this thing is mutual. So the uh, individual says, I have no loyalty to my organization. The organization says, we have no loyalty to you. So then we have to break this uh, chain, isn't it? We have to make them feel belonged. So I would put it to the seniors, the people who are decision makers. See the youngster who takes up a job, he's got, he's also part of the herd mentality. He has really not experienced life. So he thinks, okay, I'll take this job. If in one year I don't get a promotion, I'll jump where I'm getting 30% more salary and I'll go away. But in that one year, if you can make him feel comfortable, feel wanted, even if he leaves you and go away, for the rest of his life, he'll be talking about how I spent that one year in that organization and how wonderful uh, it was. And many of them will not leave and uh, go away. These, these you know, holding back people, uh, removing attrition, I think are very, very important uh, uh, areas. And this started with some of the, what we call as sunrise industries, but it has filtered everywhere. I was so sad to know that there's this college where a friend of mine got appointed as a principal, a student of mine. He has finally resigned because he says, every year the management says, pick a few of the senior people who already put in number of years of service, <coughs> create some reason to throw them out. You'd be shocked you'd say when they are performing so well. Why? Because he says that every year we have to give them increments. Mm. So if a person has started with 30,000 salary, then you give him 33, 36, 45, whatever it is. If you throw out that 45,000 bala, you can get a fresh person for 30,000 again and start off. You're saving money for the college. So blatantly. But the fact is, how well is your college or your organization running? What is the reputation? Can we have a long-term perspective? Why is it that people go to certain institutions? 
why is it that everybody who wants to do engineering wants to go only to IIT or NIT or Bitspilani? And somebody sat down and thought over, they are also engineering colleges, no? The same thing happens with organizations. If organizations can develop that skill or that attitude, forget about skill, skill comes easily, attitude doesn't come easily. If they can develop that attitude that these are, if I have a family member, if I have a nephew or niece or some youngster staying in my house and looking up to me, how much I would feel responsible for them, regardless of whether they misbehave, regardless of whether they are naughty, I would take them along, isn't it? Can we not think of them this way? And then you get that loyalty from them. I think for this, this is so well put, this dehumanization of workplaces, yeah. this uh, changing of loyalty to royalty <laughs> is something which we need to reverse. So uh, the challenges younger generation faces today and uh, what are the ways parents can be equipped to deal with those? What are, what are the ways in which they should, they should uh, arm themselves to, to be good parents and not be just parents who are following progress in schools? You will be surprised, Mr. Harsh, how many uh, students have told me, I feel <clears throat> my parents love me only when I get above 90%. Mm. Think of the gravity of that statement. We know it is not true. No parent would stop loving his child because he didn't get 90%. In fact, the parent would be willing to and is making so many sacrifices, doing so much for the child. But it is not, I always say it is not enough to love somebody. The love should reach that somebody, that somebody should feel loved. Now, for whatever the reason, the love is not reaching the child. If he gets that 92%, he sees that thrill on his father's face. He's calling up people, he's telling them, see, my son did this, so it's so great. Whatever you want, I'm willing to give you. The day he comes with 65% uh, marks. Father, they're so irritated, so angry. Even if somebody else is asking, what happened to your son? Ah, what was the happen? All that as though he's just, you know, not worth even talking uh, um, about. So starting from there, giving that feeling to the child that you are loved unconditionally, nothing to do with your marks. And that also brings us to this, uh, as I was just mentioning to you a minute back. Why is it that every second person wants their child to become a software engineer? I jokingly tell people that one fine day you become a software engineer and you're going to office and you have a puncture and there's no stepney. You go to the puncture repair fellow, he'll, he'll say, 1,000 rupees kudi, sir. He say, for a puncture, you want 1,000. Why? Because all other uh, puncture repair fellows have become software engineer. I have a monopoly. I can charge whatever I want. But this is in a lighthearted manner, but that's exactly what is going to happen. Nobody seems to be looking at it. Exactly. So if you have a child, your child is unique. Your child may be creative, your child may be interpersonal, your child may be having good concentration and memory, your child may be having good general knowledge, your child may be having team spirit or leadership spirit. Nurture those and match them to the uh, right uh, uh, careers and see how he will zoom ahead. Today's children in a country like India can make tons of money in any profession that they are good at. Hmm. I have a student who in PUC decided that she wants to be a herpetologist. 
15 years back, I didn't even know the meaning of herpetologist. I had to look it up in the dictionary. Even Google was not there at that time. And I found out that a herpetologist is a person who studies snakes and reptiles. That's right. I said, you want to make a career out of herpetology? She said, yes. I said, to the best of my knowledge, there is no course which makes you a herpetologist anywhere in the country. She said, yes. I found out that there's one in New Zealand. And those days, mind you, when it was not that easy to mm. you know, Google or something, she had found out that there is a university in New Zealand which has a specific course specializing in study of herpetology. She went there to cut a long story short. She went there. She graduated from there. And today she is working for a multinational, which is a sister concern of that animal planet company. And her salary is at least three times or five times more than the best of software engineers. Mm. And most important, she's enjoying her work. Yes. The passion and profession coming together. Yes. As a parent, I need to have that open-mindedness. I cannot be stuck and say, 30 years back, I wanted to be an IAS officer. I did not succeed. So I will push my son and make him an IAS officer. It doesn't work that way. In fact, the child can get very upset with uh, you and the child can go off track if you are doing that. Same thing with behavior. See, there's always been this thing of generation gap. So you have people who are, you know, children who are very well behaved and who are very disciplined. You have children who are very naughty, very hyperactive. All I request parents is differentiate between unwanted behavior and unacceptable behavior. There are certain things which you can say, no, this is not acceptable. Supposing he is violent. Supposing he is stealing things from somebody else. This is unacceptable. I'm just not good. But if he wants to spike his hair or, you know, do something like that or put on some funny t-shirt with some obscene message on it and all that, you can say, this is unwanted. I don't like it. I would be happy if you don't do it, but if it's so important to you, go ahead. It's not something illegal or immoral. Go ahead. With, uh, mm. it. Knowing that, I'm not very happy uh, with it. Mm. But if you can learn these very basic things of discipline, interacting with the children. And finally, I would even say, today's children know much more than their parents in almost every field. Why don't we open out and learn from them instead of all the time trying to show off that I know better than you? Yeah. One of the greatest psychologists from whom I've learned a lot of lessons is this person called Dennis the Menace. There's a cartoon in which Dennis is looking at his mother and saying, why is it that whenever you say we need to talk, it is only you who is doing the talking? Think it over. Uh, AI, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Oh, AI, authentic intelligence has been forgotten. <laughs> Pursuing of that artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, even uh, data science is uh, <coughs> growing at such a rapid pace. Uh, it's going to be the next thing. What uh, 20 years back, IT was. Uh, data sciences is going to be in the uh, next decade. You know, yeah. you know that uh, already you may be aware that there are engineering colleges which have now started offering a full-fledged four-year Engineering course in data sciences, artificial intelligence, and all that. But somebody has very nicely, you know, coined a word called DRIP. D-R-I-P. It's an acronym for data rich insight poor. Data rich insight? Insight poor. 
Oh, nice. We are rich in data. Yeah. And that's of a button, you can get data on anything that you get. But you have to have the insight to decipher that data. If you don't have that insight, if you're poor in insight, if you neglected that aspect of your emotional intelligence and your multiple intelligences, and you have madly or blindly gone ahead with data sciences, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, somewhere or the other, you're going to be losing out on that. I'm not saying it is not good, it's wonderful the way technology has advanced, go ahead. But don't lose track of what they say drip. If you, data, rich data is available now at the touch of a fingerprint. But are you also ensuring that your insight to be able to decipher the uh, data is equal to be good? Uh, you say that being alone does not make you feel lonely. Yeah. And it's not only about the pandemic, but generally I'm asking you that how does one be alone with himself? What are the ways for, what, are, what is the self-care mental health methods which one can use for himself? Because generally when one is alone, yeah, yeah. he or she is seeking outwards doesn't want to be alone, wants to go, wants to still seek, wants to go outward. So what is the way of giving some kind of a awareness and a stop to that and going inside? Firstly, let me tell you, for all the people who are alone, they don't have anybody around them and they want to immediately go out and seek people. There's an equal number of people who are surrounded by others and they also want to go out because they don't want to be with the others. They are not connecting to them. They are unhappy with them, but they are forced to be in their company. And they're just waiting to get out from the, there so that I can be alone by myself and put my thoughts in order. This was you know, brought in very wonderfully by an author called Dan Kiley, who wrote a book, Living Together, Feeling Alone. He, in fact, coined a word, um, a phrase called LTL, living together loneliness. There are more people today who are suffering from living together loneliness rather than people who are physically alone and thereby they are uh, uh, lonely. Mm -hmm. Imagine a person caught in a loveless marriage. And as per our culture, as per our commitment, we don't just walk out of marriage. There may be children, there may be so many other reasons. But imagine how lonely that person can be knowing that there is a person here whom I define as my life partner, but I can't share anything personal with this uh, uh, person. Imagine the height of the loneliness of such a uh, person. Same thing, I come across grown-up children who say, I can't say anything to my parents. The moment I start talking, they start lecturing me, they start pushing me down. So I just want to get out of the house, go and be with my friends where I can be free and I can talk whatever I want uh, with them. In fact, I wanted to share with you, there's this gentleman called uh, you know, Dr. Vivek Murthy uh, from Indian origin, but born and brought up in USA. Mm -hmm. He became what is known as the Surgeon General of USA, which is the perhaps the most prestigious uh, position that a medical person uh, mm -hmm. aspires for in the country. He completed his term, he's quite young, he completed his term, and at the end of the completion of his term, people approached him and said, would you like to write a book on what you consider as 
the most uh, you know debilitating or the most uh, uh, you know um, area of concern among all the ailments so identify that and write a book on it they thought he will write about cancer or about cardiac problems or age or whatever he said i want to write about loneliness hmm and he did it his book is called together amazing book no medical jargon anybody can read it and understand it it is of course from the us perspective but it is equally applicable to conditions now in india because at least in metropolitan cities and all that we are living the same kind of life as the westerners are um, living he has so beautifully highlighted some of these aspects and this i have seen at a personal angle that there are people who love solitude i have this friend who says you know my bedroom is very small so i can accommodate only a few friends but i have so many friends in my bedroom that there's no place to move around said, what does he do getting so many friends into his bedroom he said books the my best friends are my books and as long as i have my books with me i never feel lonely and then he went on to describe how a book is like an unconditional uh, friend like how we talk about pets no yes they don't make unnecessary demand they don't hold grudges they don't do that they are still willing to be your friend same thing you define all the parameters of a book <coughs> i neglect the book for days and weeks when i pick it up the book never says where were you all these days why did you ignore uh, me <clears throat> i read through half the book and i decided it's been too uh, much long gap i don't remember i'll start again from page number 1 the book doesn't refuse and say no you have to read from uh, here the book never makes any uh, demands the book's battery doesn't run down you don't have to recharge you don't have to do anything of that sort as long as you have a book with you you can never feel alone this is only one of the examples i can go on reeling innumerable examples of people who have found the joy of solitude and they will never be lonely it's wonderful sir what a wonderful share that is well sir i think uh, it has been really a very insightful very enriching conversation i think as you said डायरेक्शन दिखाना ज्यादा जरूरी है क्या करना है ये बताना ज्यादा जरूरी है थैंक यू वेरी मच फॉर दैट सर इफ देर एनीथिंग एल्स यू वुड लाइक टू शेयर सर टुडे नो आई फील दैट इट्स अ कंटीन्यूअस लर्निंग एक्सरसाइज यू विल नेवर ग्रो ओल्ड एज लॉन्ग एज यू टेल योर सेल्फ दैट आई वांट टू लर्न आई एम नॉट जस्ट लर्न बट लर्न अनलर्न एंड रीलर्न इफ आई मेक दैट एज अ मोटो ऑफ माय लाइफ रिगार्डलेस ऑफ हाउ ओल्ड आई गेट हाउ इनफॉर्म आई एम i will still be a happy person till my last days thank you so much sir and i look forward to seeing you in bangalore certainly my pleasure my pleasure